right, everyone. <clears throat> How's it going? How are we doing tonight? Doing all right? Good, good, good. All right, well, uh, like Cole said, my name's Gabe. I'm a first year resident here, just hopped on staff uh, this month. And so if we haven't met, I would love to meet you. Uh, I'm a big extrovert, so don't hesitate to come introduce yourself at some point tonight or uh, another night. Um, so like Cole said, uh, I have the privilege of preaching the word tonight. And as I just said, I'm a new resident. So this whole preaching thing, it's a little new. Uh, full disclosure, never preached from a stage before or with a microphone. So we'll see how this goes. Give me a little grace as I work through some nerves here. But uh, nonetheless, I'm still really excited to be here. This is a really cool opportunity uh, to, yeah, to just get to share what um, I've gotten from the Word. So with that, turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, the text will also be on screen here behind me. And uh, as you open up there, I want you all to take a second uh, and think about a task that you've had in front of you, either currently or in the past, uh, that has felt impossible. Something that, when it's laid in front of you, uh, it just gives you that pit in your stomach, uh, just thinking about how you're going to get it done. And so maybe it was a project in school, maybe it was a task you had at work or an internship or something. Uh, for me, uh, I got something kind of relevant right now. Uh, how many of you have heard of VST? Raise your hand. A few of you. Okay, so if you don't know what VST is, it stands for Veritas School of Theology. So Veritas, uh, the staff here teaches some theology classes that are accredited through a seminary, and as part of my job description, I get to take those classes. So it's a great opportunity, but we just finished the first session of classes this summer, uh, or in June. And so now we have a month uh, to write papers. So over the next month, we have to write like nine papers, at least 40 pages of material, uh, which is a problem because uh, I am a tippy boy. So how many tippy boys and girls do we got out here? Yeah, all right, tippy. We love tippy here at Salt Company. Yeah, yeah, make some noise for tippy. Yeah, all right, we love tippy. All right, here's the problem. I haven't written 40 pages of paper papers in all of college. So as I look at this VST assignment that I have laid before me, it feels like an impossible task. And I honestly don't know how I'm going to get it done. If I think about it too much, I just get worried and stressed. But my good friend Cole has done VST. He told me I can do it. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how's it, how that goes. But anyway, the reason that I bring this up and the reason I ask you guys to think about that is because as we read uh, Philippians 2 tonight, I think uh, we're, we might read, what we might read uh, might cause us to feel that, that similar pit in our stomach. Um, what it might muster up some feelings of, of fear, confusion, or doubt in regards to how uh, we respond to what is laid in front of us. So as we dive in, I just want us to keep that in mind, um, but I hope tonight's sermon can also help resolve um, some, of the, some of that tension. So open up to Philippians 2 with me, and we're going to start in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. 
Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by news of you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests, and all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character, because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am eager to send him, so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. So, kind of a long text there, um, but I think it's good just to read it all to start, kind of soak it all in, and we'll go back uh, and reread some of it. But uh, right off the bat, in verse 12, uh, we're given a really, really clear command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is a verse that might sound familiar to you, it's somewhat well known, uh, and it's clearly the main idea of this text, but here's the tension that I feel when I read that. Uh, If you were here the last few weeks, you may remember how Paul, who's the author of this letter, has just spent the last chapter and a half chapter and a half, essentially going off on how awesome Jesus is and how much he loves the gospel. And Paul's love and gratitude for the Philippian church and for the cross is, is nearly overwhelming. And he's so convinced of this truth that, that is in our Bible that he would literally rather die so that he can be in paradise with Christ for the rest of eternity. And as Jacob taught us last week, it is through this confidence in Christ that Paul boldly exhorts the Philippians and us to humble, gospel-centered living that should emulate Christ's perfect display of humility. So, having presented this case for why Jesus is great and worthy to follow, Paul wastes no time in laying out the task that is before us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In the wake of Christ's great work on our behalf, we are called to action. But, if I'm being completely honest, as I read that verse, I'm left with that pit in my stomach as I look upon what feels like this seemingly impossible task that has been laid before me. Um, And it's out of this place of tension, I think, two questions arise for us to explore tonight. So, question number one, what does it even mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Is is Paul teaching salvation that is by works and not by grace? What is he getting at here? And question number two, Uh, How do I then apply whatever he means to my life? And so uh, it's these two questions that we're going to explore, and I think they can be summed up in in our one big question for the night, which is, how do I become more like Jesus Christ? So before we dive back into the text to address that question, we need to start by addressing what in the heck Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in order to do that, uh, I want to take a quick trip to theology school. So I already mentioned I'm in VST. This stuff's fresh on my mind. So bear with me. Hopefully you don't get bored, but I promise I'll try and make it brief. And I promise it will be useful in helping us understand uh, what Paul's getting at in this text. So here we go. When Paul, in verse 12, refers to our salvation, 
he is in fact referring to the reality that dead, unrepentant sinners are made alive through Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that might seem, like you understand that, may seem obvious, but Paul and other New Testament authors actually describe our salvation as a three-stage process that happens over time, not all at once. So let's look at where we see this. I'll read a couple texts here. Don't have to flip to them. I'll just read them out. Uh, Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So here, Paul describes what you probably think of when you think of your salvation, and it is what the Bible calls justification. So this is the moment where you surrender your life to Christ for the first time and are forever declared righteous in God's sight. Uh, If you have a relationship with Christ, this aspect or stage of your salvation is really good news. It's probably a story you've told uh, multiple times. And this is why as Jesus took his final breath on the cross, he shouted out, it is finished. And that's why we rejoice um, at our salvation because we have been saved in the past tense. It is done. Um, But our salvation, as described in the New Testament, doesn't actually stop there. Uh, Because in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. So the us that Paul is referring to here um, is both himself and the Corinthian church who have already become followers of Jesus, but he makes it clear that he and the church are still actively in the process of being saved. So what does this mean? Um, The word behind this idea is what the Bible elsewhere calls sanctification, which is the process by which born-again Christians slowly become more like Christ as they follow him over the course of their life. So while our eternal destiny is safe and secure upon initial conversion, this is just the beginning of the Holy Spirit's work to save us from our old sin-corrupted flesh into new life with Christ where we are made to walk in paths of righteousness on this earth. So finally, hang in with me here. We're almost, we're almost done. We see the last stage of salvation in 1 Peter 1.5, which says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So here, Peter refers to a salvation that comes for believers in the last time, which is referring to the judgment day of Christ. And it's on this day that the Bible teaches that all Christians will be fully and finally redeemed as their bodies are resurrected to perfect life with God in his new creation forever. And this is also known as glorification. So we've got justification, we've got sanctification, and we've got glorification as the three stages of what the Bible refers to as our salvation. So what is Paul getting at in verse 12? Well, if you remember back to chapter 1 in verse 6, he already established the Philippians' justification when he said that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And we know that he doesn't have the end times in mind because he says, so now, as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So with these two things and the whole context of the letter uh, in mind, we can see in verse 12 that Paul is getting at the Philippian sanctification. So in this verse, the command that he's giving revolves around them seeking to become more like Christ in their day-to-day lives. All right, who's bored? (laughs) All right, if I lost you for a couple minutes, my apologies. Uh, but now's a good time to come back, uh, because here's the thing. We are still left with the same tension that we had before. Uh, although we now can maybe see what Paul means in verse 12, we're still left wondering how we as mere humans, or I'm, I'm still left wondering as, how I as a mere, mere human am supposed to live up to the command to become more like Christ today, tomorrow, and then every day in the future. And so why did I just spend 
couple minutes talking about theology. Uh, why does it matter that we understand how our salvation works and what Paul means by using that word in verse 12? And the answer to those questions is because that in studying these truths and knowing these truths, we actually find our first answer to tonight's big question, which is that if we want to become more like Christ, we need to know our Savior because our salvation begins and ends with him. And I'll say that one more time. Know, know your Savior because your salvation begins and ends with him. So in each of these three verses that I just referenced, um, notice who the one doing the work is. In, uh, in all three, the action is done to us. We are being saved by God in all three stages of our salvation. It is accomplished for us. He is the one doing the work. And this is what Paul is saying right off the bat in Philippians 2. If we look back at verses 12 and 13, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I can't stress enough how by far this is the most important point of the night and a massive truth for us to stop and reflect on. Because our salvation, our becoming more like Christ, what we see in verse 13 is that it's fully dependent on God and his work in our life. We can't regenerate our heart, we can't make ourselves more like Christ, and we can't be fully and finally redeemed unless God does the work. So before we consider moving a finger for the kingdom, and before we even think of doing one ounce of good works in response to this command, we need to know this Savior that we are fully dependent on. And while subtle, I think this is the exact point that Paul is making in these first two verses. So look back at the first word of verse 12. What is it? We got here. Front row boys. What do we got? First word, verse 12. Therefore. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So I already mentioned, I'm a tippy boy. I'm not a literary scholar, but I do remember way back in English class that we always need to know what the therefore is there for. You guys maybe heard that before. So we already talked about the general context of this passage, what Paul's been talking about, but I want to go back actually and reread the verses that immediately precede this passage, which some of you guys may remember from Jacob's message last week. So verses 5 through 11, let me read those here. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in light of these beautiful verses that immediately precede our text. Uh, here's a quote that I found that I think Paul's therefore helps remind us of, and it's this. Jesus is the paradigm of spiritual progress, not a self-aggrandizing struggle for supremacy, but a deep love for God and neighbor shown in deeds of service. So simply put, if we want to become like Jesus, if we want to work out our salvation, we need to know this Jesus. And in fact, I believe the more deeply and intimately we know Jesus, the more we will naturally, naturally be driven to respond in holy fear and trembling, like we see in verse 12. 
as we worship and marvel at the king who loves us. So let me take a step back here real quick and remind us, remind myself why this is actually not an impossible task. Because if you're like me, you might be wondering, I know some things about God, I know the gospel, but do I actually know Christ personally and intimately? Do I feel that? Do I experience that? How do I, how do I know Christ personally and intimately? And I think Jesus himself has some wonderful words for us to address these questions. Um, and if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never met him before, um, I especially want you to hear, hear these words. So Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So all we have to do is come to him. Come sit at his feet in prayer. Come sit at his feet in his word. Meditate on the truth of verses like 5 through 11. And come to him in surrender, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So, hopefully, uh, I feel like this passage is really good news. Uh, If you don't know Jesus, he's inviting you tonight to come to him and to have a personal relationship with the one who created you, the king of the universe. And for the rest of us, my hope is that it brings much relief and comfort as we try to figure out what it looks like to become more like Christ in our daily life and obey that command in verse 12. So, although we could probably stop there and call it good, because like I said, I think this is the most important point for us to understand tonight, Paul doesn't actually stop there. So, uh, let's see now in verses 14 through 18 how our relationship with Christ might stir us to respond with action. So let me read 14 through 18 real quick. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So answer number two to tonight's big question comes rather clearly to us, and it is this. If we want to become more like Christ, we are to seek joy in the midst of a broken world. And once again, if you've learned anything from the last few weeks uh, teaching in Philippians, it might be that we live in a very broken world and that we are yet commanded to rejoice. And you'll, you'll see this theme continue to play out as we move on in Philippians this summer. And again, if I'm being honest, as I'm reading this text, the command to rejoice as a means of becoming more like Christ feels sometimes just like an impossible expectation that I can't follow. And there are so many points in my life where the last thing I feel is joy and the last thing I want to do is rejoice. And I would guess most of us understand this in some capacity. We've all, we've all been at school or work or both when things are not going well and our frustration boils up out of our hearts, often through our mouths, in the form of grumbling or arguing. And so I think the question is, how do we become more like Christ in these moments when we just don't feel like rejoicing? Um, and the good news is I think Paul gives us 
really clear answer in verse 14. Don't complain. <laughs> when you feel like you want to complain, just don't do it. Super easy. And, uh, you know, it might feel like an oversimplified answer. It probably does. Um, but I think it's actually really practical and hopefully an unintimidating way for us to work out our salvation. Um, what, if, what if the next time that you felt frustration rise up in your heart, you sought to replace it with gratitude? What if as you guys are sitting in class this fall or sitting at work, uh, you didn't join in your classmates or your coworkers complaining about how annoying that class is or the job is or whatever, but instead express gratitude that you were receiving an education or making money, earning an income that so many around the world just will never have. Um, and I'm not trying with that, you know, that idea, I'm not trying to be like super cheesy or overly optimistic. I'm not trying to say that every time you don't complain that you're going to lead someone to Christ. But what God's word tells us is that when we don't grumble like the rest of the world, we actually shine like stars as we hold fast to the word of life, to Jesus, just like we were talking about in the last point. And so, in other words, as you seek to know Jesus and refrain from grumbling and arguing, arguing you will shine a light that emulates Christ, who is the light of the world. And as you continue to practice this, you slowly very slowly, over time, are becoming more like him, which is the essence of working out our salvation. And so, uh, this can all begin with really small, really practical, the really small and practical step of holding your tongue. So, while this gives us a great start, I think, to the practical side of becoming more like Christ, uh, I think Paul's got one more bit of wisdom for us as we dive back into this last bit of text. So let me go back and reread 19 through the end of the chapter here. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will, come, will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, for that, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him, so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold, hold people like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. So, once again, I've got to be honest. Uh, these parts of Paul's letters where he addresses real people in the immediate context of the time that he is writing are confusing. And when I read this text, knowing that I was going to preach on it, I was like, this is half the text. Well, how am I supposed to preach on this? Like, what the heck? But good news, again, I actually think Paul's got some good stuff in here for us to, be, for us to learn. And so basically what is going on in these verses is Paul is detailing his plans to send two brothers in Christ, Timothy and Epaphroditus, to the Philippians, uh, both of whom are proven servants that embody Christ-likeness in a unique way. So Paul describes Timothy as a man who will genuinely care about the interests of the Philippians unlike any other, 
And he describes how Epaphroditus cares for the Philippians so much that he became distressed when he found out that the Philippians knew that he was gravely ill. Kind of backwards. Uh, but Paul, so then Paul encourages the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and to honor both men. So in other words, he's telling the Philippians to enjoy and honor the presence of these brothers who will by nature encourage and exhort them in return. And I think Paul knows how vital it is for the church to be mutually encouraged by one another. And I think this same truth applies to us today as followers of Jesus. So that brings us to our final answer for how we are to become more like Jesus. And it is this, that we are to love and enjoy the family of God. Guys, we were created to be relational people. There's no way around it. It may look different if you're introverted or extroverted, but either way, we are created to be loved by and to enjoy one another. And so I could stand up here and tell you story after story of why this is true for my own life, but we unfortunately just don't have a ton of time. I'm out of time, I think. Uh, but here's what I will say. Uh, the Lord has used his family to absolutely change my life. And literally going all the way back to when I met my best friend Frankie back there, when I was four years old, He's surrounded me with followers of Jesus that I've had the privilege to both love and enjoy. And the last four years in Salt Company and as a member of Veritas Church are exhibit A of the Lord's faithfulness in this area of my life. And like I said, I could tell stories all day long. But um, whether or not you've had a similar experience with Christian community, whether or not you would resonate with what I'm saying or say the exact opposite, I think the application for us remains the same. And it is that we need to invest time and energy in cultivating healthy Christian community in our lives and find ways to serve brothers and sisters in Christ and enjoy when they do the same for us. So, of course, this will never be perfect and should never usurp our relationship with Christ. But what I do think is really cool about Christian community and what I've learned in my own experience is that the Lord can actually use other people to help us find joy in the midst of pain and to know him on a more intimate level. So points one and two, the Lord can use community in, which is just a really awesome experience and really joyful. So um, that he can do that within the Christian community, the context of Christian community is just really good and hopefully relieving news for us as we're seeking again to do this impossible task of becoming more like him. So as I wrap up here tonight, um, I have a question for us to think about, and it is this. What could your life look like in 30, 40, 50 years, you name the number, if you took seriously this command to strive after becoming more like Jesus? And here's why I ask this. Because it's, it's possible that at this age and stage of life, it, it actually may be easier to go to church and follow Jesus. But the reality is that, it, is that it's probably only going to get harder um, our culture is not helping this, and the older we get, the more we will be confronted with the real difficulties and struggles that this life, life has to author, offer. As we've talked about, this world's not free of suffering. So if, if we want to be a people who aren't just Christians for college or for a season, but for a lifetime, we, and myself absolutely included, need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling today. And so I hope that if you leave here with any encouragement tonight, um, it's that this is actually super doable when we know and depend on the Lord. So with that, let me pray for us. Hey, Lord, um, 
thanks for thanks for this chance to yeah just read your word and to get to spend time thinking about it uh, pondering it Lord I just ask that uh, whatever words are remembered here tonight that they that they're yours and not mine and that yeah that you would just go to work on all of our hearts as we seek to know you and to be more like you. And Lord, would you just give us peace knowing that you can accomplish everything we need in in that area of our life. And yeah, just that you're a good father who loves us. And Lord, that's the truth that I need to know every single day. So I just pray that you would help myself and all of us remember that as we go out from this place, go to C groups and then go back into our normal daily lives. So yeah, Lord, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for just the chance to be here.